All right. If you would be so kind, please turn to the book of Haggai, the minor prophets, right in between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Being in between the Z's does not mean that it's an excuse for slumber. The book of Haggai, short little book, but an amazing little book. And we're going to spend the next uh, two or three weeks taking a look at it. I'm going to read for you chapter 1. This book is one, before I get there, just a couple of words uh, about the book in general. uh, This is a book that doesn't get a lot of attention unless a church is in a church building program. And then people are all over chapter 1. Because, as you will see as we read through, it's a lot about building the Lord's house. Uh, And that's a good application for it, granted. But there's more to this book than just that. Haggai, in this book, is teaching that the people of Yahweh uh, need to be certainly zealous about building a church and a covenant-worshiping community but he's also teaching what your priorities should be in your pursuits. He's teaching about the necessity of worship from the heart. He has something to say about the role of priestly leadership within the covenant community. He, is, he talks about the importance of vision in the Lord's work, having more, as in beyond just you know, seeing a building built. Uh, but what are we really there for? And, and then he also teaches very clearly that supporting the Lord's house does not mean merely constructing or maintaining a building. There is more to it than that. As you look at the book, there are actually four sermons in this book. Chapter one is the first one. Chapter two is the second. And then uh, the uh, last two sermons, uh, well, actually... The first part of chapter 2 is the, first, the second. And then uh, you get the, the other two following short order. And there's uh, these were actually delivered, if you look at the dates that are in the timeline that's mentioned in the book, over about a three-month period. We're not going to take three months. Um, but I will do uh, three sermons, God willing, to cover first and the second. And then the last two will put together because they're pretty short. So uh, here in this, um, this uh, first sermon, we're going to find uh, this main teaching here that the Lord's house takes precedence over building your own house. And so with that in mind, then let's take your Bibles. If you'll stand, please, if you're able, for the reading of God's holy word, Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of Yahweh. Then the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? 
Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says Yahweh. You looked for much. Behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares Yahweh of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of Yahweh their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as Yahweh their God had sent him. And the people feared Yahweh. Then Haggai, the messenger of Yahweh, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares Yahweh. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please be seated. So I think you can see the thesis of this first sermon is pretty clear. You've busied yourself with your own place, but you've left God's house in ruins. Now, there's, uh, there's some history, some background that goes on here. And you'll notice that even in this first uh, section, the importance of the dates. It starts off with uh, the first day of the month, in, of the sixth month, that the, in the second year of Darius and it ends up at the end of the chapter on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month in the second year. So from the first, we've got 23 days or 24 days from start to finish of, uh, of the events of this first chapter where people did not delay. They heard God's word. They said, let's get on it. And they began to build. Now, Ezra in Ezra chapter 3, records the building of the altar and of the temple foundation. That would have been about 537, 536, something like that. But it was never finished. Uh, read through Nehemiah about the opposition that was coming. He built the walls to protect the site, but the, 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 that, this uh, temple was never finished. Now, think about what temple we're talking about here. The first place, house of worship that, that God's people had was the tabernacle. But once they were established, David had in his heart to build a temple. God said, nope, but your son will do that. So Solomon built a magnificent temple. But then something happened in 586 BC. Now, there have been several uh, things that had happened actually beginning in 605 and then in 597, where we had waves of captivities. The Assyrians and the Babylonians came in 
and captured the uh, people of Israel and took them off into slavery, the Babylonian captivity. In 586, think for a second about what might have happened in 586 that totally changed the landscape of the skyline of Jerusalem. The temple was raised to the ground, um, and which was, of course, a huge blow to the Jews who were so proud of that temple, which was uh, you know, one of the wonders of the world at the time. 586. Now, in the second year of Darius, um, that's 520. Now, if you do the math real, really fast, you'll know that um, that's 66 years, right? Uh, what did God say was going to be the punishment uh, regarding captivity? How many years? 70 years. So we're four short of 70 at this point. Interesting. All right. That's, I think that has uh, some input, impact here. Haggai, by this time, the prophet is about 80 to 90 years old. So he, along with others that were of that same vintage, had seen the original temple of Solomon, knew what its glories were. That's going to have a, a, a big impact, uh, not only for Haggai, but also for Zechariah. But... <clears throat> Uh, that's for another time. But it's it's been 66 years. Now I want to talk to you as we begin here from verses one through four, as the Lord does. He focuses upon the excuses that God's people give for not building the Lord's house. Um, and the first one that I'll give you <clears throat> here is the one, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. You know, uh, And there's a sanctified version and there's a pragmatic version. The sanctified version has a lot to do with this timeline. Because after all, the sanctified version is, you know, <clears throat> the 70 years captivity really isn't over yet. I mean, should we be presumptive on the Lord here? And I mean, after all, you know, he said 70 years. So, you know, we don't, maybe we shouldn't um, start this yet because that might be getting ahead of God. It sounds all holy, doesn't it? Um, hold on to that thought for a minute. Then there's the pragmatic version. And this would be that the political or the social or the financial climate isn't right. You know, they're, they're still in the years of captivity. Things are unsettled. Darius, you know, they're still under Darius. Are we going to be able to uh, build this? Are we going to have more opposition like we had the last time? All of these things are, would be things that people would say, well, you know what, before I invest my bucks into this, before I put my time and effort into this, I want to make sure I'm not just going to be throwing my money away. After all, it's God's money and the climate's not quite right. But there's a problem with both of these things. Is that neither of the ex excuses prevented them from building their own places. They're perfectly happy to invest in their own homes. Whether, you know, uh, it's God's money or not. <laughs> even say, I'm saying, well, you know, we've got to take care of our families, blah, 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 blah. Which they do, right? But at the same time, they were leaving something undone that had been started by God's command many years before to rebuild. And they just uh, had 
Excuses. Excuses. Verses 1 through 4. Is it time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, this house lies in ruins. And the people are saying, well, the time hasn't come yet. See it right there. It's like, well, the Lord begs to differ. The time's now to build and maintain his house. And, of course, we're not just talking about building a structure, are we? We're really talking about maintaining a witness and a testimony and all the work that God's people should be doing in a corporate manner as God has gathered us. So uh, we need to put aside the excuses that it's just not the right time. Uh, the, the climate's not quite right. Uh, and then you get to verse 4, uh, and another aspect here of the not being the time, but in verse 4 also suggests that they they were busy with their own affairs. That's basically, we've got our own things going. We're, we've got our houses built. Um, take a look, if you will, over at verse four, uh, to, to verse chapter 14 of the book of Luke. Now this section actually begins verse 15 and runs through the end of the chapter. I'm not going to read all of that. I'm just going to hit some highlights here on this. But there's some very telling things in this chapter. So there, people are reclining. They've got a, there's a, a, a table here and Jesus has talked about, you know, if you've got a, a banquet, uh, don't invite all the rich. Don't invite all those folks. Invite the poor, invite the needy, invite the crippled, the, the despised. Bring them in. And, the, and one of those um, at, who's sitting at the table with him, reclining at the table, verse 15 Here's Jesus says these things and decides like he wants to improve on what Jesus had to say. So he, he and sound really, you know, holy <laughs> and pious. So he says, well, you know, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's like, well, as in, like, well, they may not eat it now, but, uh, you know, eventually they will. And Jesus said, well, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of that banquet, most of you are probably familiar with this parable. At the time of the banquet, everybody starts making excuses. All right. Let me see. Uh, one of them says, well, I bought a field, so I need to go out and see it. Uh, please have me excused. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to the master. Verse 20. Uh, one there, and and the master <laughs> gets angry and says to his servant, well, go out and invite the crippled, go out and invite the lame, go out and invite the poor, go out and invite the despised. And um, they just and actually go out to the highways and hedges, compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. People make a lot of excuses for not doing what God says to do for not supporting his work, for not um, um, with, with either money or time or labor or prayer or any number of other things. We, we can find all kinds of reasons, can we not, to make excuses. Think about, I, I think about the stuff that needs to be done at my house, and it's like, huh, yeah, okay. Um, and uh, some of it's getting done, others has kind of on the back burner, but all of us have things we look at and say, wow, you know, I've got to put my efforts here. I've got to put my efforts there. I've got to put my efforts there. And in the meantime, the things of the Lord's house 
get neglected. Uh, let's not make excuses, beloved. Which is eternal? God's church or your house? The Lord is working for eternity. Doesn't mean we shouldn't care for our homes and our situations as good stewards. We certainly should. We've been called to do that. But keep it in the proper relationship to the priorities that the Lord has laid out for us. He's first. His glory's first. His people are first. His testimony is first. And all those other things that we have are just means to an end to help facilitate his priority. So we can give, just like the, like the Jews did at that time, lots of excuses. It's been a lot of years. Ezra, when, when um, he recorded that building of the temple foundation, maybe I mentioned, I don't remember, 537, 536, right in there. That's a, a, a long time. The current year is uh, 520. So it's been 16, 17 years. And the foundation's just sitting there. No progress made. In the meanwhile, people are getting back into the land and they're getting their own things going and their businesses and their homes and everything else. So, yeah, they had time and energy and resources to do that, but not the Lord's house. Or so they said. But the Lord says, you know, there's some consequences for priorities that are misplaced. Um, first of all, look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, you have sown much. Oh, man, this, this is a really picturesque verse. But it talks about, um, uh, I, it describes the situation of so many of us. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And the most picturesque one of all is he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The money goes in the top, goes out the bottom. And the Lord's basically saying, you wonder why you don't have enough? It's because you're not, your priorities are backwards. Your sowing produces a meager harvest. You know, both in your own spiritual life, in your desire to know the Lord more, to know his word more. You can spend, a, are there times in your life when you've just, you've gone over the word and you look at it, but it's like, it doesn't make much sense to you. Uh, it seems like your prayer life doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, you wonder if it gets past the roof. And then as far as a testimony for Christ, we think about, you know, how infrequently we actually talk with other people about, the, about Jesus Christ and his salvation. Or if we do, um, there doesn't seem to be any power of the Spirit there. It's just we're kind of going through the motions, it feels like. Maybe we're sincere in it, but... You know, for all of us, when we think about our priorities, again, not just our physical properties, but the, 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 the property of our time, the property of our funds, the property of our service, the property of our devotion... How are we spending that property? How are we maintaining that property? Is it for the Lord's glory or are we just serving ourselves in this life? People in Haggai's day, the Lord says, you've been serving yourselves. And as a result, um, 
You're, it's a struggle to make ends meet. It's a struggle to make any progress. The harvest is, is, uh, is meager. If you look at the Gospel of Mark uh, and elsewhere in the New Testament, when um, Jesus gives his parable of the soils, he speaks about the seed that falls you know, on the good ground, on the hard ground, on the thorny ground, and so on. But he says in Mark 4, 18 and 19, now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Dear friends, as the scriptures tell us, man does not live by bread alone. We can spend our lives pursuing our wealth, pursuing our comfort, pursuing our peace and safety, and ignore the God of heaven. And I assure you that particularly, you claim to be his child and you ignore him, you will have neither peace nor safety nor provision because the Lord chastens every son whom he receives. You know, the, the rich, the wicked rich, have their reward in this life, do they not? But that's all they got. Fleeting riches that don't last. And that's, we look at the labor there uh, uh, about the, the bag with holes. Fleeting wages. Um, if the outgo is uh, more than the income, uh, sooner or later uh, you're going to be left with an empty bag. Labor produces fleeting wages is one of the consequences of priorities that are wrong. Uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 62, if riches increase, do not set your heart on them. And why would he say that? Well, because I think all of us know riches are fleeting, right? It just takes one downturn in the economy. It can wipe out your entire you know, re retirement account. In, a, in one fell swoop, it's happened before, it will happen again, I'm sure. Don't, don't put your uh, hopes in the things of this life. Uh, it, Paul, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, gives him some instruction. He says, command those who are rich in this age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who... Uh, gives us richly all things to enjoy. We need to have our eyes fixed upon him. He's our priority. And love and trust him more than the things that he gives us. The book of James says that if we uh, have our priorities wrong and we're coveting those things, uh, of the, the things of this world more than what God has commanded and God himself, uh, it ends up in strife in this world. Do we have any strife in this world? Oh, yeah. James chapter 4, we read, You covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. So we need to take a look at what's happening in our lives and, and as a church as well. You know, where, are, where are our priorities? Are we seeking the Lord's house first or our own? Verses 9 through 11 are telling. 
We have great expectations from the labors that we do. You know, I, I look at uh, the work that our brother Henry is doing down in McCall, and we rejoice in that. He's putting a, a lot of effort into it, uh, just as we've put a lot of effort here into the work here, as uh, the Lord has been pleased to allow us to be here now for uh, over 11 years. And, you know, we, we rejoice uh, in the, the things that we've seen, the blessings that we have seen. There have been times, and there will probably be times, when, uh, for Brother Henry, when in all the labors that are done, I think I, if I do this, I do this, I do the other thing, then we kind of expect that what we put in, we're going to get something out of it, right? Well, the people of Israel here, they were putting things in, uh, into the wrong places, expecting uh you know, great return, and yet look what happens. Verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. You know, they were they were looking to rebuild their country, rebuild their people, rebuild their land, and the Lord's saying, It's not happening. And you've got your house you're living in. But where's the harvest? It's not happening. You put all this effort in, it's not happening. If you're finding there's a lot of disappointment because your expectations are not adding up to what's actually delivered, you might take a look at what your priorities are. Because uh, if your priorities are misplaced, then the expectation that you have of return from your investment of time, effort, money, and so on is only going to produce disappointment. Paul also, speaking to Timothy, this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, commented on this in in the spiritual realm of those who are always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. You know, we we can spin our wheels big time on the things that we think are important and wonder why we don't have more of a return in our own spiritual growth and our own understanding. Again, we need to recognize that the Lord demands the first fruits of things. So he says in verses seven and eight, consider your ways, which is the second time he said that particular phrase, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Uh, It's the first fruits. Turn over to actually Deuteronomy chapter 26. The Lord here is, Moses is challenging the people about their priorities. And this whole chapter has to do with offering of first fruits and tithes of uh, what the Lord has blessed them with. But in verse 5, we read, You shall make response before Yahweh your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down to, and this is what, in in essence, the response. This is what you would be saying to God as a worshiper, recognizing that a wandering Aramean meaning, I don't really have any reason to be here except for your grace. So a wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there became a nation great, mighty, and populous, and the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us, and laid on us hard labor, 
Then we cried to Yahweh, the God of our fathers, and Yahweh heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now, so all of that has been saying, this is who God is. This is what God has done for me. And I recognize it. And so in gratitude, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Yahweh, have given me. And you shall set it down before Yahweh your God and worship before Yahweh your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. And then it goes on. The Lord demands the first of our time, of our effort, of our funds, the best. He, he requires it of us. He deserves it. He is honored by it. You see throughout the Old Testament, the command not to bring the, the blind, the maimed, the, the second rate. You bring the best. All too often, is it not true, if we're honest with ourselves, we give the Lord the seconds. We give him the leftovers. As long as I have enough at the end of the month, then I'll contribute to the Lord's house. No, it should be the first, that's where we start. And then we live on the rest. The Lord will take care of us. The Lord will prosper us. Um, does he need anything we give him? No, but he requires of, it, of us as an act of worship before him, that whereby we are demonstrating uh, that we acknowledge his primacy in our life, his primacy in this world. And of course, then he takes those, those gifts that we have and he prospers them, he multiplies them and makes great use of them. And along the way, I think, wouldn't it uh, be the case then that if the consequences of having your priorities wrong are money that goes into a bag with holes, the logical inference here is that you take care of business with the Lord first, you give him the first fruits, you honor him, he's a priority those holes are going to get sewn up. Your fields will produce in abundance. And, and the Lord promised that all, all the way through, uh, through the law. You go through the Torah and you see the promises, the covenant promises that are there. As you walk in honoring the Lord and obedience to him, putting away idolatry and all those other things, the Lord says, I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to prosper the land. You'll have everything that you need and then some. But... Like Israel, um, there's a problem of unbelief there. We don't really take him at his word, and so we think, well, I've got to take care of this first, and then the Lord, uh, I'll, give, I'll take care of him. God demands the first fruits. When you look at verses 12 through 15, uh, you, you see there uh, some wonderful responses from the children of Israel. They heard what God said. And, and, Praise God on this occasion. They didn't grumble. They didn't fight against it. They didn't, they didn't go, oh man, you know, really? You serious? No. They, they obeyed. And there's some responses. There's a, couple of, there's a couple of responses here. And obedience is one of them. Um, beginning at verse 12, back there in the book of Haggai, chapter 1. 
So Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the remnant says they obeyed the voice of Yahweh. They obeyed the words of Haggai the prophet. And uh, we'll stop there for a second. And we'll just talk about the obedience part of this. It's interesting here in this section, and then also in, I mentioned earlier in the introduction that there's an emphasis in this book upon uh, proper leadership within the body. And you'll notice here in this section that the leadership is prominently mentioned. Like over and over again, you got Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, you know, and, and you know, son of the high priest and so on. <clears throat> you really get the idea that the, the leaders took the, the forefront, took the initiative to show the way and, uh, and demonstrate by their obedience that they were going to obey the Lord. And the remnant of the people came along with them. There is this prominence of leadership that's here and also in uh, chapter 2, which we'll look at tomorrow, or tomorrow, <laughs> next Sunday. I wish it could be tomorrow. Uh, want to come tomorrow? We'll, we'll do it tomorrow too. Uh, but verses 2, 4, 11 through 13, 21 to 23, throughout that second chapter, the emphasis upon the leadership is there. It's, uh, there's a progression from Zerubbabel. Uh, Zerubbabel in uh, the Old Testament really is uh, a kind of a messianic figure. He's called out to lead his people. Um, He's not the Messiah, not, but as a, as a type of the Messiah to come, uh, the one who is going to take the leadership in building his church. And then there's a progression from him to Joshua, the high priest, uh, who is there to minister to the people and intercede for the people, and so on. There's an obedience here to God's word. There's all kinds of excuses that we can give, as we've already seen, as to why we... we uh, Keep our pocketbook, our pocketbooks and wallets closed um, until we get our stuff paid for first. Um, but uh, this command to to an admonition to build the Lord's house um, is something that we ignore to our own peril. Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, "If you love me, you'll keep my commandments." And the people of Israel here at this time demonstrated that they were responding in love and as they obeyed their love and trust and faith that they were obeying the Lord's word here. They knew and they realized that uh, they were not living, they realized that they'd been wrong and what they needed to do was to uh, have their lives ordered and, and be governed by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So they walked in obedience to it. And then the end of that verse there, and the people feared the Lord. I want to ask you a question. Is the presence of the Lord something you desire? So let that sink in for a second. Now the temple, of course, was about the visible place where the Lord's presence could be known. Where the Lord, I mean, he doesn't need a house. He doesn't need walls. He doesn't need any of that. But he was making a point by having them build a tabernacle and then the temple as, and then filling it with his glory, filling those buildings with his glory so that it would be a testimony 
to everyone else that the Lord was there. It was an accommodation to fallen man uh, sensibilities. Okay. So, you know, you think, well, why would anybody want to build the temple? It's a lot of work, a lot of money, a lot of effort. Yeah. But they were desiring the Lord's presence. At least that's what they said. Their actions were showing that they were not quite as enamored of the Lord's presence as they may may have uh, convinced themselves that they were. But if, if you really desire the Lord's presence, then there is effort, right, that we go to. No sacrifice should be too much, and so on. But let me ask a follow-up question. If you desire the Lord's presence, why is fear involved? I mean, most people, uh, if they fear something, are not looking to bring it close. If there's a desire for the Lord to dwell in their midst, yet every time the Lord has dwelt in their midst and you see God come down in power and glory throughout the Old Testament, what's the response of the people? Fear. They're on their faces. They're running away. (laughs) Because it's too great, it's too mighty of a thing. There's a recognition here that that as the Lord uh, speaks to us, that we'd better be paying attention. We need to give heed to God's warnings. To walk in obedience out of a holy reverence and fear before him. The question before us really then is, do we fear him enough? Do you fear him enough? Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 20 says, Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble in my presence? I mean, we love him. We want, we want his presence because of his life-giving power, because of his goodness, because of his, the wonders of his knowledge and everything that he does. And yet, he is so far above us, so far beyond us. We cannot grasp it. We cannot understand him. We cannot control him. And all those things lead to a proper fear and dread before the one to whom we are accountable for our souls. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. We need to walk in a holy reverence and fear before our God. That is the proper response. As the Israelites did here. They, in this occasion, they did not argue. They did not push back. They did not complain or grumble. They obeyed out of fear and reverence for the God who delivered them for the God who brought them back out of captivity. And they stopped with the excuses about, well, it isn't time, it isn't time, it isn't time. Take a look at verse 13. Uh, the Lord sees this and speaks again to the people through Haggai, where the Lord affirms, says, I am with you, declares Yahweh. The Lord encouraged them in doing what was right. I think it's uh, pretty awesome. Remember the year, second year of Darius? It's 520. 
What was the, what was the uh, year that the temple was destroyed and they were finally carried away and the 70 years began? 586, six years. It's really a marvelous thing that the temple was finished in 516. 70 years fulfilled. So the Lord's timetable, uh, the Lord's schedule was right on time. You know, we think about, well, it's not time yet. Well, it's the Lord's time we ought to be concerned about, not our own. Again, he's working not for time, but for eternity. So let us uh, not make the excuses. Let's not have our priorities misplaced when it comes to supporting the Lord's house and encouraging its ministries here, as well as your, your own personal ministries at home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your families. The time is now to put the Lord first, and he will take care of every need that you have in abundance. If you're, I'll be blunt, if you're waiting to the end of the month to see if you have any money left to give to God, your priorities are wrong. We need to be giving to the Lord first and watch what he does in filling up your house. Years and years ago, when I was getting ready to, to start the church in St. Helens, Oregon, now in Scappoos, <clears throat> Karen and I uh, were just embarking on that effort. And it was a little scary because we were going out. It was a faith mission kind of thing. We had to raise funds for it. Um, we weren't sure how that was going to go. And we were comfortably employed. We had uh, things in our own home there in Tacoma. And it seemed like uh, we could have been there forever and ever. Amen. And it seemed like... Uh, Wonderful thing. We had great ministry there and so on. And uh, yet the Lord was moving us into a, a place that seemed to us less certain. And it was a little scary. We talked about it uh, quite a lot. But I'm thankful for the confidence that the Lord gave to both of us. It was really not of us. Um, but I think it gained some strength from passages like this in, in Haggai and other places as well. I remember very clearly having a conversation with uh, one of the gentlemen that was in the church there in Tacoma, and he asked us, you know, how are you going to, how are you going to live? And I, I replied with, with uh, I, perhaps a little more bravado than actual faith, but, you know, trying to put on a good face. of Well, the Lord will take care of us. And you know what? Um, actually, it's not, and a, a church plant is not known for, you know, being a real high dollar thing. But uh, since, when was that? That was 1995. Yeah. Started that church, then was working in, in, uh, in New York and helping out churches there. And there was also a, a faith, uh, you know, support-based uh, position I had there as director of PMU. And now we started here as a church plant. Um, we're particularized, what? five, six years ago, something like that. Since 1995, not once have I ever missed a paycheck. Not once. As you can see, I have not suffered from starvation. You know, the Lord takes care of us 
we need to just actually, even if it is with bravado and not a lot of faith, step out and trust him to support his work, to do what he calls you to do, to uh, very clearly to put his house first. And he will abundantly supply everything that you could ever need or want. He is not stingy. He will take care of you as you take care of his house. We can't just dismiss this passage as an Old Testament curiosity. The building of the Lord's house takes precedence over building your own. So beloved, with me, let us examine our priorities. Are they the same as God's priorities? If not, we've got some changes to make. God, uh, may God help us to do that with grace and with joy, obedience, and a holy fear before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this admonition that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that we would not um, <laughs> succumb to the temptation to hope that somebody else is listening to this message. But Lord, let us take it to our own hearts and examine by your grace what our priorities are before you. And Lord, let us adjust ours to yours and help us to, uh, Lord, put our efforts and time and priorities into those things that you say are the priorities. And let us then, by faith, recognize that as we do that, you promise over and over and over again to supply every need of ours. Lord, in our generosity to one another and to your house, uh, let us labor, as the Apostle Paul commended the churches of doing, um, of, uh, of striving to outdo one another in, in uh, generosity and giving back to the Lord so that you may be glorified and the church built up as a testimony, a shining light on a hill that cannot be hidden. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do among us. In Christ's name we pray.